everyone, and welcome to Debating Metal. I'm your host, Kenneth Dean, the Dean of Metal, and along with my co-host, Chris Kay, we discuss and dissect our favorite music, heavy metal. So sit back, relax, pop open a cold one, and let the debate begin. Welcome back. This is Debating Metal. I'm Kenneth Dean, the Dean of Metal, and I'm here with my co-host, Chris Kay. How you doing, Chris? I'm doing pretty good. This is episode three. We're back for another week's worth of debating, if you want to call it that. I think we're going to debate more today than we have the first two episodes. Um, Absolutely. And our subject today is a somber one. Chris, why don't you tell them what we're going to talk about today? Uh, we're going to be talking about the deaths of musicians and how it affected the sound of a band. Uh, to to make it more specific, we're trying to keep it in the realm of bands that continued after the 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 you know the 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 death of that musician and how that person impacted the 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 band. So how how the death impacted them, and mm-hmm. how the change in personnel affected them yeah just just aspects like how how that person contributed to the band uh via songwriting the sound etc that that changed the upcoming albums really okay sounds good what else are we going to talk about today uh we have to mention that uh three uh drummers have died this year uh starting with neil peart uh we've got two others yeah, we have uh, Neil Peart died. Uh, he was the, to put it in a, in a weird way, he was the first one to die. Um, then we had Sean Reinhart from Cynic and Death. Uh, Appeared on one album for Death, uh, but was mainly Cynic, mm-hmm. uh, jazzy metal band, a death metal band. Yeah, a jazzy death metal band. Who would have thought? <laughs> but it worked. It worked, yes. And then also Reed Mullen from Corrosion and Conformity, the original drummer, uh, who had uh, been replaced a few years ago because of alcohol problems. So all three of these drummers were influential in their fields, um, and obviously Neil uh, was huge worldwide. Um, Sean Reinhart was huge in his circles, and Reed was was very influential early on in in the in the mid to late eighties. I don't know as much about uh, Reed Mullen. Um, definitely, we'll look into him. Uh, but as far as uh, the other two, I mean, we all know Neil, Neil Peart hugely influential to not just guys in metal hard rock but but just any musicians i mean he's well liked uh not huge in the uh, realm of uh, doing interviews or anything like that well, he hated him he absolutely freaking hated him and he hated talking about drumming that's the weird thing. <laughs> yeah <laughs> but uh so many people list him as a as a uh influence oh, uh, he he was beyond influ- beyond drummers he was influential to all sorts of music. Songwriting. I yeah, mean, songwriting. He's the main songwriter for uh, all albums of Rush past the first one. So, yeah, he, I mean, he wrote all their lyrics. I, I always think that's kind of weird, you know, as, you know, with Getty Lee being the singer. Mm-hmm. How, is, how is it that you didn't write lyrics? Well, I mean, it's it's the same for Black Sabbath with Ozzy. Right. I mean, exactly. he, didn't, he didn't really write lyrics. He contributed in other ways with the, the you know, melodies of songs, et cetera, but didn't really have any major contribution to the lyrics. Right. We were talking about that the other day with Dee Snyder and how he was the main songwriter of Twisted Sister. Mm -hmm. Yet, I'm sitting there thinking, how is it that that a band can have five guys in the band, two of them being guitar players, 
and they not write music. That's a subject for another time, but it's it's Absolutely. something that we talked about the other day briefly, and, and it's just very strange. I almost call it an anomaly in in in, in music because D is he's a great singer, he's a great songwriter, but how is it that you know he either he didn't share or they just didn't want to, and it's just mm-hmm. kind of weird. So, but yeah, so Neil's death is what pretty much inspired this episode. And what we're going to talk about. Kind of. I mean, kind of. For, for, there was a conversation which uh, revolved around Randy Rhodes. Yes. And Randy. that's that's kind of where we started. But just the passing of somebody so major is always difficult and definitely brought rise to this. For sure. So why don't we go ahead and start talking about uh, Randy. Um, so let's, let's, let's talk about Ozzy first. Uh, I know that he was one of the ones that you wanted to mention. And so he is... Yeah, the, his death was hugely, you know, greatly impactful on on what happened afterward. Oh, for sure. Um, with Ozzy, uh, Randy Rhodes was was in the band for a brief amount of time. In 1980 and 1981, they had really two very successful albums. Everybody knows Blizzard of Oz and Diary of Madman. Um, a big part of what made those albums successful was his partnership with Randy Rhodes. Uh, that being Ozzy, his his partnership with Randy Rhodes. Right. Um, working with him, they had a lot more freedom than he had when he was in Black Sabbath. Um, you know, you had huge personalities in Black Sabbath. You had Tony Iommi, who's known as the riff master. Uh, you had Geezer, who was just a master of his instrument himself. Uh, Bill Ward and. That was during the entire time that Ozzy was in the band with mm-hmm. Bill Ward. Right. Um, so all these guys were just masters of their craft, and Ozzy wanted a little more freedom musically. He, he wasn't happy during Technical Ecstasy, left the band briefly. And during the recording of Never Say Die, he decided he wanted to rejoin the band. And I say that during the recording, it was probably more right around the time it was about to start. They had recorded a, a live version of one of the songs off of, of Never Say Die with uh, Dave Walker, who replaced him briefly. Uh, but none of that really came to a fruition. They changed all the lyrics of the album. It didn't go well. They did a tour for for Never Say Die, but it just... it Everything was going awry. He was becoming more detached from the band. Van Halen kicked their ass. Absolutely, <laughs> they did. Uh, that, was, that was a big thing. I mean, it was... You had Van Halen on tour that was rocking the show every night, and Black Sabbath was just disappointing. Yep, and and that was from a number of accounts. I wish I would have seen that. I mean, I was ten at the time, you know, seventy nine or you know, eight, yeah. nine, ten at the time, so I wouldn't have been able to see that. I wouldn't and I wouldn't have known the difference back then anyway. But well, the, the big thing was that. Uh, even the, I mean, the band was huge into drugs and alcohol. I mean, they they were well documented in that, you know, in indulging. Mm-hmm. But they really all felt like Ozzy was going overboard. So that really says something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it does say something when when you you know kick a guy out of a band because you're the you're the worst. You're the alcoholic. Worst alcoholic you're the worst alcoholic. drunk. You're the worst drug addict. So he he was fired and he was kind of left wondering what to do next. Randy Rhodes was previously in Quiet Riot and that was kind of under the radar, but it, it was for the first two albums. At the time, they were pretty relatively unknown in the U.S. And while they had a bit of a following in the L.A. scene, uh, they they had two albums that had only been released in Japan. 
nobody in the U.S. really knew who they were unless you were in that scene. You know, the L.A. scene being pretty tight, they all knew Randy, but no one really outside that circle knew who Randy mm-hmm. was. And Well, luckily... Luckily, somebody from Slaughter did. Uh, he would be in Slaughter later. That was Dana Strom. Uh, he convinced Randy Rhodes after pestering him to audition for Ozzy's band. Ozzy was just so impressed when he did try it out that he he gave him the job pretty much on the spot. He just listened to him here uh, tune up, and he played a couple like riffs just to test his guitar out, and he was mind blown. And Randy didn't even realize it was the audition. I mean, he he was just you know, tuning up. <laughs> so he was astonished. I mean, he was just blown away that he, he made it to band. Um, it, it just, it went like butter from there. You know, most of the fans, most fans now know Blizzard of Oz and Diary quite well, mm-hmm. uh, with songs like crazy train over the mountain, goodbye to romance, Mr. Crowley flying high again. I mean, it, it, you can really name every song in the album and they're pretty much a hit. There was a controversy. Unfortunately, arose right after the recording of, uh, of diary of a madman. And they kicked out Bob Daisley and Lee Kerslake from the band. Mm-hmm. Um, that was Sharon Osbourne fired both of them. And even on the album cover, and if you looked on this the insert, you had Rudy Sarzo and uh, who replaced oh, Tommy Aldrich. Uh, Tommy Aldrich. So you didn't you didn't have um, you know it was it was pretty bittersweet yeah. for, for I mean, Randy Rhodes. Sharon tried to basically eliminate the fact that those two guys, you know, Lee and and uh, Bob were on the album, mm-hmm. and that, and that's you know and they st- and she which st- came later. No, but even then, I mean, considering yeah, she that they didn't said, want them, you know, their that names they put Rand, uh, Rudy's face on there, they had mm-hmm. a picture, you know picture with the four of them you know ozzy randy rudy and tommy yeah you know they they, they completely left off lee Kerslake and 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 bob off the album and if you don't know later on uh, there was even bigger controversy when when she had their parts re-recorded so they wouldn't get credit on them without ozzy's knowledge by the way yes and as soon as he found out that went down he he, he, he got it fixed he got it fixed and that and good for him yeah, so what ended up happening was was Randy Rhodes was really upset by this and considered that that was the first time he considered leaving the band. Um, he didn't want to go on tour for the album. Everyone around him, including Bob Daisley, said, "Don't be stupid. You know, just you, you're the star of the show. Really, you know, just just keep going on. It don't don't lose the job for us." Yeah, and then and that was also part of the chemistry that they had there. I mean, that was that first album, Blizzard of Oz. Well, both. Basically, I mean, they had grown so much when they made Diary. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, Diary, as much as a masterpiece as Blizzard of Oz is, there's such an, an enormous jump in, in ability and technicality. It, it was a cleaner album. And, I mean, the, the Blizzard was a little more raw, mm-hmm. uh, but Diary was, from that brief amount of time in one year, mm-hmm. they had just become so tight. Yeah. So, uh, around this time, and it's been documented... Um, that Randy went to Ozzy and said he was considering leaving the band so he could, you know, get a degree in classical guitar. Um, he wanted to kind of focus on that and leave rock music for a little while. Honestly, we just, we don't know what would have happened. Right. Because 
Unfortunately, he died in a plane crash. I mean, when you see so many of the interviews from when they talk about that, everyone kept saying, well, Randy was probably going to leave. Randy was going to leave. Randy probably leave. they only go so far. Right. I mean, it could have been something where they took a break for six months or whatever, and he, he got his thing, and who knows what would have happened. Oh, absolutely. We, we never got to that point to, to understand what actually was going to happen. So, I mean, we really don't know if that would have ever come to fruition. And in 1982, uh, Randy Rhodes died in a plane crash at the age of 25. That's yeah, just terrible. It's it, but it's it's really telling to say that this guy who really only had four albums and two of them were well known and the other two pretty you know pretty much non-existent uh had two amazing hit albums mm-hmm. under his belt. And so many people revered him as as their biggest idol. You know, people that inspired them to play guitar, like Dimebag Daryl, John Petrucci, uh, Zach Wilde, even who later joined Ozzy's band, um, Alexi Lyo from from uh, Children of Bottom, Paul Gilbert. So mm-hmm. beyond what we even know, I'm sure, and probably to this day too. And when people listen back, oh, I mean, yeah. he's my favorite guitar player. You know, back back in that, you know, in those days when in the mid '80s, when I was growing up. Even though he had passed away, Randy's influence was still felt. And there, mm-hmm. there was always that fight in magazines, you know, all the metal magazines. Is it Eddie or is it Randy? You know, is it is it Ace or is it Eddie? Is it Ace or is it Randy? I don't know why Ace was even in the conversation because he's nowhere near as good as either one of those no, two. No, I mean, as far, but, as, as, far as his playing skills, I mean, it, it's not the same, but as far as his presence on the stage. Yeah, but... Yeah, that different it, it, I, I, I even even me not knowing as much as I uh, you know back then about stuff like that I even knew Ace couldn't touch either one of them. Oh, yeah. you know, but Eddie the 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 whole thing between Eddie and Randy, I chose my side, and not because I dislike Eddie at all, because it just Randy to, there was just something beautiful about Randy's playing. Oh yeah, where there was something extremely you know the the speed and, and blistering effects that that Eddie had, Randy had them too, but. There was something just so technical about Randy that made it just beautiful and sweet to hear him play. Yeah, and speaking of the Randy and Eddie aspect of that, um, Eddie really didn't have a lot of positive things to say about Randy Rhodes. I mean, not as a person, but as a player. He basically had the opinion that he was just doing all the same things that, that Eddie did. You know, and as as somebody that started and was was a groundbreaker in that that field, I get the the apprehensiveness that when you when you see somebody rising and getting the attention that was yours, but at the same time, it was jealousy. He had no, jealousy. jealousy. Yeah, he had to recognize that Randy well, Rhodes was an incredible. Player. There's no way you couldn't. I mean, you also think too that at I the, mean, he admitted that right, he said that at the time too. George Lynch was around, and George Lynch is older. Than most of the guys that were from the LA scene at that time, mm-hmm. younger than Eddie, but older than that whole scene, you know, mm-hmm. with Rat, Molly Crew, and all those guys. And he was also considered at one point for the Aussie gig, which um, I was about to get into actually. <laughs> and uh, so he was just as good, if not, you know, oh yeah, uh, equal in some cases. And so fantastic guitars. So you, when you think about all the guitar players that came out of LA at the time, I mean, you know, Randy rises to the top, Eddie rises to the top. For the most part, George too, because I mean he's he's an incredible guitar player. But he Rand- did, but but I mean his skills are there, right? But- I mean each of their paths went different ways, mm-hmm. and you know obviously we know we know where what happened with Randy. 
So with Randy's untimely passing, uh, really, where did this leave Ozzy's band? Well, Ozzy initially, was, Ozzy was shattered. He absolutely. Initially, shattered. he wanted to quit music. Understandably so. Yeah, for sure. He'd been through a lot, you know. Even even though he wasn't very happy in Black Sabbath, it was difficult to be fired from you know his long term friendship with these guys. Mm -hmm. Um, He was having a rough bunch of years. Yeah, he was he was having a tough time, and the drug addiction obviously didn't help. No, I mean think about that's that's a four year span. That's not very long. No, I mean between seventy eight. I mean obviously everything that happened with Black Sabbath was building up throughout the Mm seventies. But you're talking about seventy eight having a bad year, seventy nine. Uh, with technical ecstasy. Well, 78 was technical ecstasy. Oh, I mean, with 79 with never, say, never die. say die. And then, you know, you, you, you get fired from the band. You're basically blitzed out on your mind, drugs and alcohol, and you finally put it enough together to get a band. Mm-hmm. You have this great band for two years, and all of a sudden it comes to a screeching halt. Oh, yeah. So what do you do? Luckily, and, you know, to, to her credit and to her detriment, Sharon was there. And right. wouldn't let it happen. She, you know, she told him, "You got to keep going. You'll get past this. It's hard, but you'll keep going." Well, they had the, they had a tour to finish. They well, they had seven more shows to play with. Uh, well, they they had more than seven more shows to play, but they had seven shows that they played with uh, Bernie Torme, who was he played with Ian Gillen, who mm-hmm. had actually later joined Black Sabbath. Right. Um, you know, uh, but of deep purple fame. Six uh, degrees of separation of England. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, it's so bizarre because it, all of this is going to cross over oh, yeah. every, with every story. Um, but uh, he played with uh, Ian Gillen. Uh, he he had more of a jazzy style that didn't necessarily fit in with uh, the rest of the band. They kind of quickly realized that he wasn't going to make it. It, but he was never really intending to to join the band full time, so uh, it it was it was a mutual thing. That being said, Ozzy spoke very highly of him. Said you know that no, he did as well as anybody could have done in those seven shows following Randy's death. Right. Um, so it, he didn't last long. But then then uh, we had Brad Gillis of Night Ranger fame that joined the band. Unfortunately for for Mr. Gillis, it just it didn't go well. Ozzy took all of his frustration out on him. He was he was dealing with Randy's death, who was you know a young guy, a friend. He he just never accepted Brad Gillis into the band, and he abused him. I mean, he he didn't stay there. His his tenure only lasted long enough for them to record. Uh, Speak of the Devil, the live album, which was an incredibly good album. It is very good, but it I was it album. was not something Ozzy wanted to do either. No, that was a, a last second replacement. They wanted to put out an album, which ended up being tribute and title it Speak of the Devil, and, and Ozzy said, "No, there's no way I'm going to let you do that. Mm-hmm. Not with Randy on it." Yeah. So 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 they did Speak of the Devil, which was a cover of Black Sabbath songs. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was it was a live version of Black right. Sabbath songs you know, dictated to him that he had to put this album out and recorded at the Ritz in New York city. And (laughs) (laughs) it it, it was a great album, but, uh, the cracks were already there. Brad wasn't going to stay. That kind of also prompted the, uh, exit of Rudy Sarzo who had taken over bass at that point. What that did bring in was the return of Bob Daisley. Uh, oddly enough yeah oddly enough uh sour relationship but you know 
Bob was a little smarter about things, you know, get writing credit. Unfortunately, something odd happened on this one, which I'll get to. Uh, it also brought in Jakey Lee, which was the the first true replacement for Randy Rhodes. So interestingly enough, uh, Jakey Lee joined uh, Dio just right before he joined Ozzy. Oh, really? Yeah, he was in the band very briefly. Is that after Vivian Campbell? No, it was, it was at the very it was before beginning. Vivian. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. Because so I was going to say eighty three. I think is when it was. It was next. newly formed band right after him leaving okay. Black Sabbath. So. Again, what's with things, everybody leaving Black Sabbath? Things. <laughs> well, four hundred more people would t- would leave Black Sabbath over the time. I don't know the course of that. So. Yeah, I know the eighties. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, was very there for a very very brief amount of time. The styles just didn't mesh. So he went in through the outdoor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it was again Dana Strum who recommended Jake, Jake. Lee. So another connection there. So what makes Bark at the Moon a little easier to compare to the previous album? So you got you got Bob Daisley, you got Ozzy. So you've got one of the major songwriters from the previous album involved. Uh, you've got a, a new a new drummer for a studio album, Tommy Aldridge, and you got uh, Jakey Lee. So the biggest the biggest uh, contributing factor that you can keep them apples to apples is just that you know one major change to the band. What's funny about Tommy doing that album is that he's not on the album cover. Carmine, a piece, a piece. <laughs> I was going to say apathy, but that's Vinny. That's Vinny. Uh, no, yeah, Carmine ends up being you know trying to partner up with Bas- with Ozzy, mm-hmm. and he's on the videos. I don't think he's on the album. No, he doesn't. He doesn't yeah. play on the album. That right. was Tommy so, Aldrich on the album. So, so Tommy. Basically, doesn't play on any Ozzy album other than Speak of the Devil at that point. That's the only one he... Because he wasn't on Diary. No. I, oh, no. So I'm sorry. He did plays He plays on Bark at the Moon, so, but then doesn't... He should, he's yeah. not credited with being on the album. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of odd things going on there. Uh, because actually, Ozzy is the only one that has a writing credit on Bark at the Moon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Jake um, got screwed on that one. He did. And, and didn't talk about it for the longest time. He was actually under contract not to talk about it. And I think he technically still is, but he finally just said, you know, what the hell he with this? He had enough of it, yeah. yeah. Really, a big big factor, again, was Bob Daisley wrote a lot of the material with Jakey Lee. Uh, Ozzy would come in, contribute some minor amount, uh, sometimes contributing to... Uh, the sound of a song. So I mean, he was he was involved for sure. There's no doubt about that. Yeah, but he's not a songwriter. He, yeah, he's really not. Okay, so how did the album stack up in comparison to Blizzard and Diary? While Blizzard was certified six times platinum, Diary was certified three times platinum. So and to me, Diary's better. And to most aficionados and fans of the band specifically, like real true fans and not just casual listeners, that that is the better album. But I think more people know Crazy Train, so the the casual fan will pick up that album instead. Yeah. I mean, you can't go to any sports arena without hearing Crazy Train. No, of course. I mean, to me, Randy recording uh, Blizzard, you know, again, like I said before, that was the stepping stone to get to Diary, Mm -hmm. where Diary was like the masterpiece. That mm-hmm. was the final... To me, Randy's best song is Diary of a Madman for what he did for Ozzy. And that that the whole instrumentation of that song is incredible. Diary of a Madman was uh, was certified three times platinum, but Bark, of the Moon, Bark at the Moon was as well. 
So, you know, on, on the cursory level, they're, they're really not a whole lot different. So Jakey Lee did step in and fill a void pretty well. He did. I mean, he, Jake is an, is an amazing guitar player. Mm-hmm. I, and I've seen him live in person when, he, when uh, he had Badlands. I mean, he's just an incredible talent. He went in there under very difficult circumstances and puts together an album with Bob Daisley. I mean, Bark at the Moon's got some good songs. Journey to the Center of Eternity, So Tired, obviously uh, Rock and Roll Rebel, obviously Bark at the Bark Moon. At Bark the at the Moon, Moon is a huge hit. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, to me, up until that point, it is Ozzy's second biggest hit. There's Crazy Train and then Bark at the Moon. Bark at the Moon put Ozzy back on the map. For sure. And that, that, that's what he needed at the time. But what was different, though, was that Randy's situation was so much more open and free. He, he had the complete trust of Ozzy. Right. And Ozzy wasn't as broken at that point. So he, Jakey Lee comes in, and he's in a more restrictive environment. He's in a more Sharon-controlled environment. Yeah, I think I think a lot of it had to do with with the death of Randy. It was almost like trust, you know. It's mm-hmm. like you know, I I lost the Riff Master. I'm not a, I'm not friends with him anymore. You know, I have Randy, who's now had become my best friend, mm-hmm. and he's gone. You know, had this you know issues with Bernie and and Brad, self inflicted, and then here comes Jake doing anything and everything he can to to, to please Ozzy. So much so that he gave up his writing credit because Sharon comes over and says, "You know what? We're not. You got to sign this contract, or you're never. Or gonna we'll make find it. somebody else. Yeah, we'll find someone else, and you're, you'll you'll be gone, and you'll be history, and no one will ever know who Jakey e. Lee is. You know. So he does it, and he does it under those circumstances, and put out a great performance. Mm-hmm. Plus, it was the '80s, 1983, and we're talking about time, not just times are changing, but in terms of metal and, and that and that hard rock stuff, the, the sound, sound was, changing. was changing, and that's a very overproduced album. Well, not just that; and it's it's got a lot of keyboards. Oh yeah, that, I mean it, the, the keyboard, and it wasn't. I don't think it was Don Airy on that album. It was. It was Don Airy, but uh, it just was on so Bark much the Moon. on Bark mm-hmm. the Moon. It was so prominent because they, he had keyboards. Obviously, you know, Mister Crowley from the first album is, mm-hmm. is keyboard heavy song. But, but it, that was a that was a, a unique song on that album, right? So. They they had keyboards, but it was so much more prominent in in Bark at the Moon, and then it, later on it gets even more prominent. Well, Jakey Lee's guitar work was also heavier than Randy Rhodes. Randy Rhodes almost had kind of a whimsical style, uh, whereas Jakey Lee was a little heavier. So it, it, they just they had a very different sound. Mm-hmm. They had a different relationship, and that's very apparent for, from his his two albums. You mm-hmm. got you've got Randy Rhodes on the first two albums, Jakey Lee on the second two albums, you know, he, and uh, that was um, the ultimate sin. Ultimate sin, and that's a and that's a good album. But if you see on that album, Jake got his writing credits back. He did, uh, and reluctantly it, too. Sharon was very reluctant about that whole thing. That was <laughs> the most successful al- album for Ozzy. It it, had, it sold the most. Uh, it just it was a huge, but Ozzy doesn't like the album. No, it's, it's, it's his it's, least favorite. It's it's too slick of a production. Mm-hmm. The songs are too, for lack of a better term, too soft. And there's nothing really heavy. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the, I think Lightning Strikes is a really good song. Could have been heavier. You know, it, Shot in the Dark is a big one. Shot in the Dark was a, it was a huge hit, but it was such a wimpy kind of sound. I mean, I, it may not have been the song itself, but the, the production, it's just a soft that was, production. That was Ozzy's. He, he hates the, the production on I mean, that it could It could probably be such a heavier song mm-hmm. if, it, if it wasn't for that lame production. So and I think that was Roy Thomas Baker who produced it, and that, that has a lot to do with it, too. Because yes. he's very known for that so you know almost that, muted kind of muted and, and very keyboard heavy and, mm-hmm. and and you know very slick um so basically the the takeaway that i took was that after randy's death the environment for anybody coming into the band they almost became like a hired gun you know that they, they were they weren't it was no longer you know the band that started off as blizzard of oz it was Ozzy and whoever he was playing with. And it it wasn't necessarily from Ozzy's perspective, but it was from his camp because his manager was kind of seeing to it that that, there was always kind of a relationship of whoever comes in, you're replaceable. It kind of changed with Zach Wild. That changed a lot with Zach Wild. But that was because Zach got along so well with Ozzy. And Zach was a huge Randy Rhodes fan. And they had that relationship through him, even though Zach didn't really know Randy Rhodes, but they had that that relationship through him that kind of healed Ozzy in a way. Yeah, I mean, obviously Zach is still there to this day. And and he left and came back. Well, yeah, he's gone. Yeah. He's gone back and forth. But I mean, he's always said that that uh, Father Ozzy is always going to be, you know, mm-hmm. the one he looks up to. I mean, you think about Ozzy brought him in. He was 19 years old. So he was relatively you know, like Randy. Exactly. I mean, unknown. There's a lot of commonalities there. There's a tremendous amount. Of, I mean, besides the the, the the skills, because the skills are, are not compare. It's, uh, you know. Yeah, they're completely different the, players. The, the 19 years old, you know, basically coming from New Jersey all the way over to California and, and just essentially giving himself to Ozzy for a long time. A super positive guy. Oh, yeah. yeah. A lot He's, just fun to be around. Uh, so to conclude, uh, back to Jakey Lee, um, you know, he came in at a tough time, uh, but he was a more than competent guitarist. You know, he 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 never had the opportunity that Randy Rhodes had, but uh, but he he definitely filled in and in, in probably the toughest time for Ozzy and still put out some amazing albums. Definitely. So Ozzy released The Ultimate Sin early 1986 and when he decided to go on tour he brings this band that they've got a name for themselves in the thrash scene the underground metal scene Metallica and now all of a sudden they are going to they, they basically shoot up the top Master of Puppets gets released a couple months later um, and so I guess they go on tour together at that point Metallica is opening up for Ozzy and by comparison sakes a lot of people were saying that Metallica was blowing Ozzy off the stage Ozzy's doing the Ultimate Sin tour. Metallica's doing Master Puppets. You tell me which one is a little bit more powerful at that point. Oh, yeah. So, (laughs) to his credit, Ozzy did not or was not afraid of Metallica. Let me put these young kids out there. They're going to blow me off the stage. But you know what? I'm still Ozzy Osbourne and you're here to see me. Which is the positive attitude you definitely want. You don't want somebody that's bothered by somebody up and coming and going to hold them down. 
or you know, or give him half a stage. I mean, he gave Ozzy. I mean, he did a lot for Molly Crew, and then he gives Metallica not a big stage, but enough where they were able to put crosses on stage, and and able to do a lot of the things that they that they eventually you know led them to being a bigger band. Well, that being said, Ozzy's been given a lot of bands a huge forum through Ozfest. Oh yeah, I mean he he really has. Uh, but then he got paid for it too. Well, that doesn't that, hurt. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. You want you want Ozfest? You're gonna have to pay for it. Well, the story of Metallica, you know, uh, obviously everyone. I don't want to say everyone knows this. You know, there are a lot of people that are new to metal that don't necessarily know the story of Metallica. I'm not going to get into every every little detail of, of how Metallica started and where we got up to, but in 1982, they recruit Cliff Burton to play bass for them. Um, they moved to San Francisco. They record an underground tape or a demo tape that you know underground hit called um, "No Life to Leather." It's picked up by a guy in, in New Jersey named Johnny Z, and Johnny Z says, "I have to sign these guys." He pays for them to come across the country. He records their first album. They're living in his front porch inside the house. They have no money, no nothing. They record "Kill 'Em All," so we know that story. Kill 'Em All goes on. I mean, they they do the Raven and and Metallica kill them all for one tour. They they're touring across the country. Their second album is, you know, they go to record Ride the Lightning in Copenhagen. They record it, comes out again on Megaforce Records. Then they get signed by Elektra Records. Elektra re-releases Ride the Lightning. Basically, they're off and running with the major label, major management, because they changed management from Johnny Z to Q Prime. Now they're off and running. Cliff Burton, to me, was the... How would you say it? He basically was the maestro of that band, in my for opinion. For those two albums. For, for for the three albums. Well, from what I understand and what, what Lars has expressed is that it wasn't until Ride the Lightning that Cliff and Kirk, Kirk. really began their influence on the band. Because a lot of the stuff that was on Kill em All was Kirk and James. I mean, sorry, it was Lars and James. Right. Because they had been writing that stuff, and those songs first, were written before. So the the there was a minimal aspect of of Cliff and Kirk's presence on the first album. Yeah, I mean Kirk really just, all he did was play guitar solo. Yeah, on the he first just album. played what Mustaine had played before right. him, and then Cliff really his only major contribution to that first album was Anesthesia. Writing wise, I, I writing think, wise, yeah. I mean, they hit, obviously, he brought in a playing style that oh, far yeah. surpassed his his predecessor, Ron McGovney. Exactly, but, but he didn't have the writing credit. No, and, right. And his presence in the the following two albums and in, in Ride oh. the Lightning and 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 uh, Master of Puppets was so much more there oh, yeah. Yeah. for sure. Ride the Lightning, you know, obviously, yeah, with with Cthulhu and you know, for whom the bell tolls. You know, his, his Cliff's writing was was on full, you know, mm. on full force. But um, it wouldn't be until Master Puppets when he he did his little masterpiece of Orion that people really kind of had the full effect of what yes. Cliff was all about. Yes. Um. So they're on tour with Ozzy in '86 with with the Ultimate Sin tour for Ozzy, and they're they're promoting Master Puppets. They go to Europe to headline small venues. I believe Anthrax was uh, their opening act in most of the shows. 
Oh, that's crazy. Yeah, it's, it's weird. So there... That's how big Metallica got so fast. Oh, yeah. It was... Uh, and but They weren't playing big places in Europe the way they do now, but still, they were headlining clubs, mm-hmm. you know, and, and Metallica... Like I said before in the first episode, Metallica is near and dear to my heart. Everything that, you know, just about everything they do, I'm going to like. Especially Lulu. Yeah, not that one. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's nothing like those first four albums, if you want to put it that way. Metallica is, is just is very special to me. That being said, Master of Puppets is um, Cliff's... Uh, Magnum Opus. Yeah, it has something like that. I mean, everyone thinks it might be anesthesia. It's not, even though that was that was just the, the tip mean, of the iceberg. Yeah, no, that was just him. You know, basically, it was a base version of uh, of all these guitar players jerking off on stage. You know, showing how fast they can play. His was more not about speed, but it was about dexterity and this crazy distorted sound. And and even then, Orion, which was supposed to be. You know, I guess another extension of that. I mean, the song itself was great. His guitar, his bass solo was was kind of dumped in the mix, and that was the beginning of the bad bass playing mixes <laughs> for all the bass players in Metallica. So he he uh, they're on tour in in, uh, in Europe, and they have a bus accident. We'll just put it like that. For the people who don't know, um, it, it you don't I don't want to rehash everything over and over again. But I, I do know there's a faction of people out there that, that don't know the stories and, and don't know the, the tales and everything that happened, weren't there, they weren't alive. But that doesn't mean that they're, that that fan base is less significant. It's just a matter of trying to move the story along while, you know, you know not dragging it out for three hours because we can talk about Metallica or Ozzy or ACDC all day long. So they're in Europe during the, during the Damage Incorporated tour. Um, and uh, supporting Master Puppets when they have a bus accident on the evening of September 26th or in the morning of September 27th. Um, the bus flips over. Cliff is ejected from his bunk. The bus lands on him. He is killed. And Metallica, at this point, is just devastated. But I think those guys will to play and continue was as much as they were devastated, it was so much you know, Lars was not gonna be stopped. I think if if the band had said I'm gonna stop right now, I think James would have been okay with it personally. Um maybe not Kirk. Kirk probably would have went back to Exodus or something like that. But he would have found a home. Yeah somewhere. he would have found a home. But I think Lars is what pushed James to continue and you know they did not grieve. They did not mourn. They had shows to make up so seven weeks later, there's a bass player named Jason Newstead who's in the, is in the band now, and they go to play Japan. Completely different player from from Cliff. Plays with a pick. He's more metal than any guy in the band. And when I say that, you know, yeah, they're playing thrash and they're playing fast speed, but Cliff was not just a metal guy. Cliff was a punk guy. Cliff was a country guy. Cliff was a southern rock guy. I mean, and Cliff was a classical guy. He was an amalgamation of so many things i mean it, it, he even talked about if you've ever seen the the documentary the i say documentary but it was more of a compilation of videos uh cliff them all mm-hmm. and he's talking about all these things like different bands that they love he's just talking to kirk and he, you know oh yeah. that's that's uh you know that's merciful fate that's this and that you know and he's just so excited about it and then he's putting all these ideas 
that that are influenced. They don't sound just like the who they were, but they were just influenced by these bands into his own art. Right. And he was just a great songwriter. Oh, he was. And a great player. Mm-hmm. I mean, those fingers were, were flying. Jason, on the other hand, was a metalhead. He was a Metallica fan. And he was all about the metal. And, you know, during the Black Album Tour, they joke about, you know, him being metal. <laughs> and and uh, too metal sometimes. But that's that's nothing wrong with that. I mean, that's what kept the fans. You know yeah. I mean? Jason's playing and Jason's showmanship during, you know, the uh, Black Album Tour, during the Load Tour, even during the, the, the Justice Tour was, was basically what reigned in all the fans. And yeah, people that were kind of put off by the change in sound. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, so Jason kept that. I mean, he was the one, the thread that kept everything together for a while. Cliff's influence on Metallica can be seen... Going into, or not, not can be seen. Cliff's influence on Metallica can be noticed on how everything changed on "And Justice for All." As much as as it's a very similar album and it's considered one of the top, you know, the four classics. Mm-hmm. If you sit there and, and one listen to the sound, to the progressiveness of the songs, okay. Yeah, you it, can it, definitely hear the sound change in the bass line. Well, <laughs> what what <laughs> or, bass? Or lack thereof. But, but you know, even even with that being, you know, done, the, just just the, the whole production of it, and then not because the bass is missing, but the guitar is now way up front, mm-hmm. okay? There's nobody that's playing a bass guitar in Metallica, you know, that's sitting there saying, hey, I need to be up front, or I need to be higher in the mix. Okay, because Jason has no place now at this point. He's he's just still kind of like the James and and right, Lars show. It becomes the James and Lars show where before it was the the Cliff James and Lars show because Kirk was still just a guitar player playing lead guitar but solos. That being said, I think Cliff was the balancing member of the band and and was more inclusive because you know Kirk had his place there, right? And it, and and they, it was a band. Mm-hmm. And much like what I was talking about with with Ozzy, when when Randy died, it became less of a band and it was more of a you know more of an Ozzy solo was show. A, and so the original two guys went back, reverted back to what they were before. You know, right. they were in charge. You can see the jump in songwriting, and and then in production, mm-hmm. and then when when they went to the Black album, you know, a lot of people sit there and say, "Oh, Cliff never would never would have done that," and I I disagree. Personally, I think that they definitely could have, could have, or would have went in that direction, based on Lars having a conversation saying, "Hey, I want to play more groove oriented," and that probably would have fell right into Cliff's pocket because he can get that groove. I mean, listen to "For Whom the Bell Tolls." It wouldn't you know? have been the same. No, it wouldn't have been the same. It would have been a completely different album. Yeah, but it, it wouldn't have been the black. But they album. might have still diverged in some capacity. Right. It wouldn't have been. I don't think it would have been as progressive as "Injustice for All." For for what it was, I mean, even though they did similar things, with Master Puppets being that you know you have the main riff and then you have the middle section and you have the, the solo and then it, you know however it, it was pieced together, you listen to again Justice for All or even um, uh, what's the song like Shorter Straw, you know those little chunks mm-hmm. of songs that are that are that are basically one riff here, one riff there, and you know especially when Justice for All has got like five different riffs in there. Yeah. You know, that as much as that's their style now and that's what the way they've always claimed to, to do their songs, that's not really true when you think about it. 
you know, there was you know, one or two riffs here in every song. That, that's natural. But to have five or six in one song, that Cliff wouldn't have done that. You know, he would. You're, he, you're actually losing material by using too many riffs in one song. Right. I mean, so them changing to the more groove, I think, would have would have been definitely okay with with Cliff in on the Black Album. The songs would have been different, but it, it would have been a, a really cool groove. That being said, we will never know. Yeah. You know, we have the last tribute to Cliff on And Justice for All with To To Live Is To Die. Wasn't there more than just that as far as his his writing credits? No, that was it. That was the only one? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. No, And the words that are said in that song were his words. Yeah. So. And that song has a little bit different feel than the rest of the album, too. And not just because it's a slower song. There's just it's something about one it. main riff, <laughs> you know, dun, 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 you know, and it just goes on, and you know, similar to how Orion has that one thing until it goes into the little, mm-hmm. the high end bass solo. That that's where you know you see the big difference when the band changed. And he's like, all right, James. It became like you say the, the James and Lars show, or, or actually more Lars and James show because Lars is the driving force behind that band. Yeah, Lars was definitely the um, the the catalyst that pushed everything forward. I mean, it kind of in the same way that Sharon, you know, said we need to keep going. Right. You know, same thing. Exactly. Not it's, the same person. But. Right. So there's always one main person who's going to be the driving force, and everyone comes along. And I don't think James is, is a tag along in that regards because obviously he's the one who's writing the riffs and the lyrics. Not at all. But he's you know if there's anyone that's going to sit there and say hey come on and grab a hand it's going to be Lars first. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's always someone that way. And Lars, for for lack of, you know, for better or worse, Lars is what he is. So that was Cliff Burton of Metallica. And we can see a distinct difference from before his death and after his death. We've spoken about Ozzy and Randy Rhodes before his death and after his death. Who do we got next? Um, so one of the biggest guys and, and, and most difficult changes in a band was probably Bon Scott, ACDC. And not necessarily difficult to, as in a, a huge change in the style of the band, but basically what he represented. So let's, uh, let's start from the beginning. Um, while the band formed in 1973, uh, Bon Scott is kind of recognized as the original singer of ACDC to most people because that's really the first that anybody heard of the band. Right. When, uh, when the band broke in, in Australia, he was their singer. Yeah. And they had recorded one single with Dave Evans, the original singer, but that never made it over to the United States. Who is still living off that one single. <laughs> I mean, and I don't think it's a financial thing. I think he's just, the the fact that he was associated with ACDC, he's still living off that. I can't stand that crap. Yeah, well, we'll talk about that. <laughs> That's a, there's, there's episode. a lot of guys like that in, in the industry. So the first album that was released was uh, High Voltage, uh, and it's not the High Voltage that most people know. It's the Australian re- release High Voltage. Um, so what's what's interesting about that is uh, much of the first album was released on the, the 74 Jailbreak, which came out after Bond's death in 1984. Right. Um, two songs made it onto the uh, international release of High Voltage, and uh, the other two songs from the album, there's a total of eight, uh, were released in 2009 
on backtracks. Mm. So it took a long time for everything from that original album, the Bon Scott era, to uh, get to the United States. The second album was uh, TNT, which the majority of was actually on our version of High Voltage. So there's a lot of kind of oddities in the release schedule of ACDC's original material. Um, well, that's because that's how long it took for them to, to, to row the boat to get the, the records over yeah. here from Australia. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> I so, know. Go on, I'm sorry. So, so ACDC didn't really hit the, the U.S. until 1976. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, that's nothing to me describes ACDC in the Bon Scott era more than there's a long way to the top if you want to rock and roll. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's the truth. I mean, they had to fight and scrimp and save and sleep in the back of cars and whatever had to happen for them to be a rock band. And that's that, that song just speaks so truly. So the next release that we got was Let There Be Rock. We missed out on, on Dirty out, Deeds Don't Do yeah, that, that, Dirty That makes no sense to me. But again, that's a record company sitting there saying they would rather not have this album for whatever reason. They didn't you think know? it would be successful or whatever whatever their decision was. Um, they just didn't want to release it. Now, keep in mind that records were released more rapidly during that time. And we, and we touched on this before where the press aspect of bands was not there. Right. So the creativity was able to continue. There wasn't a press circuit where you had to go around and do a bunch of interviews, sign autographs, etc. Uh, these guys just kept going. So they got Let There Be Rock, and um, it, it was pretty commercially successful. I mean, it didn't. It wasn't huge, but uh, then we had Powerage. We had uh, the live album. If you want blood, you got it, which was pr- fairly successful. It had all all the major hits. It was basically an ACDC greatest hits album up to that point. I was still wondering how how Angus was able to survive that guitar through the, the belly. <laughs> I, I couldn't understand that. <laughs> as a kid, the as pre a kid, Photoshop era, too. You know, and that's 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 the amazing part about it. it it's pre Photoshop. But what was weird is that I always said to myself, okay, so he's got this guitar sticking in him on the front cover, right? And on the back cover, he's laying flat down on the ground with the guitar sticking straight up. It's like, well, well, what about the body of the guitar? Where's the body? <laughs> I mean, so I'm, you know, this album came out when I was nine years old. I didn't know anything about it, but I would see it in the stores. And I'm like, how does this happen? How How, how is this guy alive? You know, and then <laughs> the on things the back, that kids think of. Yeah. I mean, he's dead on the back cover, but yet the guitar is not like it's sticking straight up, but it's not. You know, how does that work? And I even think in today's Photoshop age, they still would have done the same thing. Probably. But it it's so, you know, as a nine-year-old, you're like, how, how does this work? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, now we're up to Highway to Hell, which is ACDC's breakthrough album. Um, it's fine. They're finally gaining, gaining traction. Um, they're, they're getting on TV shows. You know, they're getting the airtime. Um, unfortunately, just seven months later, Bon Scott passes away in the back of a car from uh, acute alcohol poisoning. Uh, it's it's kind of been disputed uh, whether it was other drugs involved, etc. But that's the official reason, mm-hmm. and uh, that's what it maintains today. So, he, in the liner notes of Highway to Hell, on the re-release digipack from a few years back it also says that he froze to death so 
Um, there's a, there's a lot there that's kind of a mystery, but we probably will never know, at least until the passing of Angus, maybe. Yeah, I mean, um, and that's a God forbid. When you say when you sit there and say froze to death, it's it's hard to understand. It really was hypothermia. I mean, he mm-hmm. he was cold. His body, you know, not moving because he's passed out drunk mm-hmm. in, in the middle of really cold weather. You know, so that's freezing to death, basically. So you have a band that's that's just had their major breakthrough, and the, a close knit group. Bon and, and Angus had a, a really strong uh, friendship. He was a, he was the older guy they looked up to. Right, he was like a father figure, and so. It, it, it uh, was one partying father figure. <laughs> oh yeah, there, there's a, there was a, a quote from Angus where he, he talked about you know you had this guy that drank like a fish and then he'd wake up in the morning no worse for wear and everybody was like how does this guy keep going? So that, so it was a huge surprise when you know a guy like that just suddenly passes away. What Bond brought to the band was was not just being a singer. But he was actually a drummer before. Okay. Um, it's not very well known, but that was that was kind of the mentality he came in with. So he had kind of a more of a band member mentality that was said by most people, rather than being a front man. So he was he was a, a team player start. He also was the lyricist. I mean, he was he was a a poet. Yeah, we can tell. Which you know, there's there's a little bit of a conspiracy involving his his notebook after he passed away. But well, what really made him interesting was that he had a clever uh, lyricism that it just really can't be matched. Um, no, I mean he, the the words that he he said it's it's, it's very obviously with songs like Big Balls. Dirty, dirty deeds done dirt cheap. <clears throat> they me. were a little on, little on the nose, but the, those are the the minority. Yeah, but touch too much, you know. Even highway to hell. I mean, the, the songs obviously have a, a particular style and rhythm to the to the lyric writing. Well, he had a way with double entendre. Exactly. That was that was his big thing, the double entendre, mm-hmm. and that's what would end up becoming missing from the band after he goes he he passes away. And um, much like. The other two bands that we've mentioned, I mean, the the initial shock, pretty much just they they said we don't want to keep going, you know, it was, it was just painful. You know, these guys were musicians and the, musicians to the core, and they found more uh, solace in continuing to play music, and not necessarily for any reason other than they just just went back to work, um, right? Just playing. And it wasn't even to record a new album or anything like that. They just, they were just, that was what they knew what to do. They kind of decided that they were going to start, you know, doing something, working on a project. And there was one person they wanted to specifically hear, and that was Brian Johnson. And the reason for that was Bond was actually a huge fan of Brian Johnson. He had seen him play in England, and they wanted to, uh, bring him on board just to for a tryout because he had spoken so highly of him. So they bring him over. He had actually already been, been singing a whole lot of Rosie with uh, his band Jordy. So he had some, I mean, he basically came in, played that song. They fell in love with the guy. I mean, he was as heartbroken over Bond's death as they were because he, he knew the man and he, it, it was just 
a tough thing to to see somebody that was so kind, so likable lost. And what also made Brian just fit right in was that he had the seal of approval from Bond's parents. I mean, they, they went to see him. They said, that's the guy. Continue with him. Don't quit. So it it just it all the pieces just fell together just really quickly, right? Yeah, I mean, um, I mean Bond passed away in February, mm-hmm. and the album is out July. July, so you know, picking a new singer, recording a brand new album, and it being as big as it was, the biggest in, in, in I mean, that in that short period of time, as big as Hell, uh, uh, Highway to Hell was at the time. Yeah, uh, no, no, as big as Highway to Hell was. Oh, as big as yeah. Comma. Back in Black <laughs> right. was bigger. Oh, and, obviously. I mean, it's, it, it's it still felt today. It's a better produced album. Uh, the, the sound alone is just so clean. Mm-hmm. And not in an overproduced way or cheesy way. Well, both albums, it, um, Highway to Hell, Highway to Hell and Back in Black, were both produced by Robert John Mutt Lang. And he learned from the first, you know, the first work with ACDC right. and took it to the next level. And so it just—it was just such an interesting thing for them to go so quickly into creating this new album uh, and and produce such a, some amazing songs that are still. I mean, Iron Man used most of that material from Back in Black on on the movies. Well, it's the, the only greatest hits compilation that ACDC has ever released. Was Iron Man Two soundtrack? Iron Man Two soundtrack. So here leads into the. Uh, the conspiracy theory regarding Back in Black, which would be that ACDC basically had somebody go in and take Bond's songbook before all of his belongings were sent to his parents. So the the theory is because there's so much similarity in in this the lyrics of so, some of the songs on Back in Black that there's a possibility that some of that material was taken from his songbook. Now we, there's no way we'll ever know this. Uh, let's let's talk about this a little bit and, and break this down because we have the opportunity. You shook me all night long. Everything in that song is is Bond. Oh yeah. I'm sorry, Brian Johnson did not come up with that crap. Well, Brian <laughs> Brian Johnson, keep in mind, he he didn't write a lot of lyrics on most of his time in ACDC. Well, he he stopped writing lyrics after after um. Fly on the Wall. Mm-hmm. So he hasn't written a lyric since Fly on the Wall. But none of those albums past Back in Black have that same lyrical value. Right. So that that's where... They're all pretty one-dimensional. The conspiracy theory falls into mm-hmm. place. I, I can say, okay, Back in Black is not a is not a Bond song. Back in Black, the song itself, no, not no, at all. No, I, I can totally get that. But You Shook Me All Night Long. And apparently, what I've read recently was Have a Drink on Me, despite being kind of obnoxious considering that, that he died of alcoholism. It was a song that they were writing with Bond. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you have that song. You have, uh, I, I'm giving the dog a bone. That is classic Bond Scott. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> you know, is, what do you do for money, honey? Is classic Bond Scott. And, I, you know. I can I can hear him singing in my head. I can hear them singing Oh, exactly. So, to me, that whole conspiracy theory thing is totally plausible mm-hmm. because... If you listen to the lyrics to especially, I mean, no more than, than You Shook Me All Night Long. That song is so double entendre that it, it and and given the love and both, those two songs, so much of, of Bond's lyrical style. 
And to think that it's never been repeated since. And since it was Angus and Malcolm writing all the words since Flying the Wall on, and they don't have anything close to that. And basically all uh, Malcolm and Angus can come up with is something with rock and roll in it. Because every (laughs) damn song that they do is... Well, they did, I mean, they did Thunderstruck and songs like that, but and they're great songs, don't get me wrong. No, they're, they're, I mean, obviously, they, they, they're, they're fantastic can... songs, but they, the, the lyrical content is different. So that's, I mean, that's the biggest thing that changed was, uh, you know, what, what Bond brought to the band, the cleverness of the lyrics was different. You know, there, oh, it, yeah. it was more one-dimensional. It was more straightforward. The double entendre was gone. It just, that's that's where they go. But that being said, ACDC is one of those bands that basically can put out the same album over and over and over again and somehow make it work. And, yeah. and it's great. You know, One of the few bands that do it. There's not very many that do, and it works, but they're one of them. There's never going to be another Bon Scott, but there's also never going to be another Brian Johnson. I mean, the, no. the, the guy can, is an air raid siren. He's, he's, well, I mean, there's there's plenty of guys that sound that have that similar sound. You know, the the gravelly voice. I mean, Udo, uh, Mark Tonello. But the power that was behind that guy's Right, but voice. the power. I mean, if you... What I, the, I love the song that Brian did with um, Jackal. That's, a, that's an awesome song. Locked and Loaded. But yeah, his voice, two distinct different voices. I love Bond's voice. Somehow my wife can't figure out either one. She thinks they're the same. You know, I've heard people say that. I remember I, I, I was I in don't, high school. I never get it. I never get it. Yeah, I was in high school, and, and my friend Eddie was, you know, they found this guy that sounded exactly the same. And like, no. no. <laughs> not at all. <laughs> not at all. I, I always said, you can understand what Bond said. I can't, I still to this day, half the time, don't, don't know what Brian is saying. <laughs> and, that, and that's with, and that's with reading the lyrics. <laughs> it's a tough thing to lose a singer in a band mm-hmm. I mean that's you know obviously we've talked about a guitar player we've talked about a bass player we've talked about a singer mm-hmm. and those are hard I mean singers are hard to replace oddly enough bands have done it and so what about a drummer <laughs> funny you should mention that and, and and you started off the show by saying that, that, that the criteria for this was how a how a death of a musician changed the way the bands sounded the way the bands recorded the way the bands wrote music. What about the way that uh, music changed? Well, I'm 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 going to talk about John Bonham briefly from Led Zeppelin, and uh, because I can, <laughs> and and because I want to. Um, well, I, I can't I I can't disagree with you talking about him, but even though I don't feel it necessarily fits the criteria, but what he what he changed when he died was was not and, and I will let you speak about his effect on the Zeppelin but just music in general mm-hmm. when he died music changed oh yeah lots of things changed that year John Bonham from the band Led Zeppelin at the time of his death was one of the most influential drummers in rock and I say that because that dude <laughs> played drums like Noah. I mean, he pounded the drums. He was punishing to drums, but yet had a dexterity and a, and a smoothness about him that, that was, was hardly ever replicated in that kind of, that style. You say the music changed, okay? 1980 was obviously, Bon Scott died in 1980. 
John Bonham died in 1980. So what I was trying to say about John and Led Zeppelin and what changed for them, they were so distraught about his death, unlike ACDC, unlike Metallica, unlike Ozzy, they literally came out and said, we're done. They said, because of his death, we're not going to continue. And this is this is the quote. Led Zeppelin released on December 4th, 1980. We wish it to be known that the loss of our dear friend and the deep respect we have for his family, together with the sense of undivided harmony felt by ourselves and our manager, have led us to decide that we could not continue as we were. Signed, Led Zeppelin. When you talk about an effect on music, the fact that a drummer, and not to take away from drummers, but the, the fact that a drummer passing away basically made three other virtuoso mu- musicians say, we can't continue as Led Zeppelin, is, is a monumental statement all in itself. It's huge. And that's, that's why I chose to talk about Bonham, because his influence, you put it this way, his influence as a drummer up until 1980 was, was felt, for obviously, up until now. Because people still talk about John Bonham. Oh, yeah. I think his legend grew after he died. Oh, yeah. For sure. And so now we have, talking about drummers going full circle in this whole episode, we started talking about three drummers that passed away. Neil Peart being the most influential of them all. And, you know, John Bonham influenced heavy metal drumming. I mean, he was going to play double bass drums on Communication Breakdown. And Jimmy said, no, it's too busy to think that nowadays... That's what it is. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's so much drumming in songs nowadays. Like, come on, dude. You don't have to play, you know, quintupled notes in three seconds. Tell that know? to a dream theater. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I mean, Mike Portnoy, Portnoy it's his fault. <laughs> no, I mean, when you think about it, it, all these bands, I mean, the, the, the black metal bands, the death metal bands out in Europe, Portnoy, the progressive bands, It's all. it all goes back to, you know, in hard rock drumming, all goes back to John Bonham pounding away at the skins in 1969, playing triplets during communication breakdown or, or, or I'm sorry, good, uh, good times, bad times mm-hmm. with a single bass drum, not double. And you could hear it. I mean, imagine if he would have played with the double. Oh yeah. So that's where his influence in, in what changed music changed. And you said earlier that the music changed. What, what to you changed about the music or about music? His passing, I mean, people were influenced by him before he he passed away. Mm -hmm. But after he passed away, I mean, he became legend. So many people, interview after interview, people cite him as as, as an influence. But a lot of times people will say, this guy's an influence and you can't tell. But his his effect can be felt across music. Oh, yeah. I mean, it it just, not just in metal, but hard rock, in, in any genre. You know, all these guys we talked about, Neil Peart, Sean Reinert, Reed Mullen, Reed Mullen, all of them, I'm sure, had some interest, like, going back. I mean, I remember listening to, to Gene Hoagland talk about uh, the influence that John had. I mean, today, the only person that could play, replace him for any amount of shows was his own son. And I don't think that's necessarily because he's just as good as his father. It's because of the emotional connection. Right, it's the emotional connection. And, and, and he's... He's a damn good drummer himself. He is. But it took a long time for him to come to realize that he needed to stop drinking himself to death and doing the and drugs that he did. And following basically, his father's and footsteps. Follow, well, yeah. Rather than follow into the grave, 
he decided to follow into the into the drum set. Mm-hmm. And you know, he was bred for this as a kid, playing with Zeppelin as a kid in, in rehearsals. But he fully realized his potential when he became the drummer for Led Zeppelin later on. Yeah, I mean, and you, was, I mean, you hit it right on the nose. It was that emotional connection mm-hmm. that that allowed for that any amount of shows for Led Zeppelin to ever occur. And that, I mean, that's that's the thing. Anytime we lose one of these guys, um, it's heartbreaking, and we wish we would have known what would have happened next. What ends up happening is their legend grows and grows. And today, luckily, we still have all these recordings from these guys. You know, oh yeah, we I can mean, hear Randy Rhodes. We can hear. I want to hear. I wish I could hear more Randy. Oh man! I mean, I, I bought I bought the 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 Quiet Riot Years um, a compilation by Rhino. Mm-hmm. And you can hear some of the the Ozzy stuff in there that he that he pulled out of those songs. Yeah, but I mean it's not the same. And it, it, no, I mean you can hear it's so raw. He's it's, so young, yeah. too. And there and Quiet Riot, and I mean we can go into this in another episode, but Quiet Riot during that time, there was a lot of upheaval with other members of the band, and that's why they didn't continue in the way they did with the, with that lineup because there was so much going on. So it wasn't exactly the most conductive and, and productive environment either. Right. When you, you, you mentioned earlier the influence of all these musicians that have passed away, and when you, when you think about the list that we put together, and I'm just looking at mine, you look at Phil you know, Lynott on bass for, for Thin Lizzy. You know, he was a vocal, vocalist and a bass player. Mm-hmm. And not only that, a black Irishman. Mm-hmm. I mean, so he had all these different things about him that, that made him so special and unique. unique. And Thin Lizzy basically ended after he passed away until they reunited later on and, and decided to honor his legacy. Hillel Slovak from Red Hot Chili Peppers passing away, I mean, devastated them. They came back, they, they, they brought in John Frusciante and they came back with the best album that they could possibly make with Blood Sugar Sex Magic. I mean, yep. an incredible album. Def Leppard goes huge with hysteria. And then in the midst of in between albums, Steve Clark passes away. So even though Def Leppard, the, the, the sound continued and the style continued, that, they're probably one of the few bands that you could say that the change in guitar players was almost minimal to the songwriting and the sound. Mm-hmm. Because the sound is the sound. That Def Leppard sound is not changing no matter who's playing. Yeah. But for the band members themselves, it was a huge loss. And Vivian Campbell, you know, stepped in and has done a fabulous job ever since. Then you have other bands like Nirvana or Blind Melon or or Pantera or Damage Even Plant. Even modern bands like uh, Motorhead. Oh, yeah. You modern might- bands like Motorhead? Well, mo- modern passings. <laughs> oh, <you know? laughs> I guess I, you know. I'm, you're saying all these bands that the the, the members it, passed away in the nineties. Yeah, it was years ago. But you, you got Lenny who just passed away. Or Dio. When when the- it's amazing. Dio's been gone for ten years. Yeah, that's incredible. Uh, Dio passing. I mean, Lemmy passing a few years was was. I mean, if you talk about one particular person passing away, where their influence is felt across the board, Lemmy Kilmeister from Motorhead dying was that was a set everybody everybody in rock everybody in metal didn't matter what genre of rock it was yeah Lemmy dying affected everybody because Lemmy was everybody's friend <laughs> that's the amazing part there was barely anybody who had a bad word to say about Lemmy yeah 
he was everyone's friend. I mean, and then on top of that, the guy just let you be. You know, he'd say hi, and you know, he had some interest in in you as a person, but it, it wasn't. He wasn't this scary guy that a lot of people thought he was. Probably the yeah. definition of chill. Oh, jeez. <laughs> I mean, so someone like him passing away deeply affected a lot of people. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of people. And, and and each one that you listed in the last batch was mm-hmm. guys that when they died, it ended the band. I mean, because they either were the band, or they were such so synonymous with that name that there was no way to replace them. Oh, yeah. I mean, obviously, Motorhead. He was Motorhead. I mean, Shannon Hoon is a little different. They continued. Blind Melon. Well, Blind Melon ended and for a few years. And, and, and then, then came they back, came back. And they reunited. You know, but most uh, of them, it, that, that was the end. I mean, you think about someone like Kurt Cobain from Nirvana. If, I mean, that ended the band. Mm-hmm. And There's no way you could continue. You can't replace a guy like that. No. I mean, he was, he was the main songwriter. His death didn't affect me the same way. As it but affected, it affected so many because people. I was a generation ahead of that. So, but I mean, I was still part of that scene. You know, listening to the grunge scene and, and all that stuff. Kurt Cobain's passing to me was almost like stupid. You know, and I, I hate to say it that way, but it's like obviously the heroin had an effect on him that was beyond. I mean, he was depressed. And, and, and people will sit there and say, well, what's he depressed about? He's making all these millions of dollars and he's got all the money in the world. and He's got all the fans in the world. But what people don't understand about depression is is it affects, it doesn't matter who you are, what you are, what you do, where you live. Depression will overwhelm you to a point where someone like that with all the success in the world is, is going to deep dive deep into heroin and kill himself. You know, and well, that's, that, that's sad. And, that, and depression is worse than the drugs. I mean, there's more to it than that. I mean, it, not everybody is is happy with right. that amount of fame. Mm-hmm, exactly. And the depression is only going to get worse when you're not happy. Mm-hmm. And it, it's it's a conundrum because you're doing the thing that you love, but sometimes for the wrong reasons. And it's very important when you when you feel that way. To get help. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, when you're in the situation that a guy like him, that he's in, um, you have so many people around you, around you telling you what you have to do. And there's not always an easy way out. Right. And another one affected in similar ways with depression and drugs was Chris Cornell. That was so shocking. From his best friend, Andrew Wood, in Mother Love Bone passing away, that affected him deeply. So much so, at the time, he made Temple of the Dog to honor his friend. Then to come back so many years later in 2017, and it, we're, oddly enough, I mean, we don't know these per, these people's personal lives, but he was obviously on some sort of drugs. And I think these it were antidepressants or whatever they were, you know, and then getting to a point where you commit suicide because of something stupid, you know, like, like his wife was saying that he, you know, it was the drugs that made him commit suicide. Not the drugs, not like heroin or, or cocaine or anything like that, but the, the, the kind of the prescription drugs. And that's, that's just terrible to then affect another best friend of his, Chester Bennington, the same year. He couldn't go on because, or he felt he couldn't go on because again, another person that was depressed because they 
just couldn't handle certain things. I mean, yeah. it, it, sh- it shows that you, you never know what's going on deep inside someone. So it's important to listen to those around you. And when, when they are expressing that they're dealing with depression, you know, be there. Mm-hmm. Or at least help them find some way out. Yes. So, a somber subject, but unfortunately, you know, it's, it's something that has to be tackled. I think we, we, we talked about Ozzy Osbourne, Randy Rhodes, ACDC and Bon Scott, Metallica, Cliff Burton, John Bonham and Led Zeppelin. We talked about several different bands. So now we're going to swing around and talk about our big four for the week. Our big four this week is based on instrumentals. The top four or our big four instrumentals, but they're fully realized songs. So they can't be a guitar solo. No eruption. No eruptions. No chupacabras from Black Label Society. Um, no intros to songs. It no intros like Hell I mean, and Fingers Priest. And if it was, it needs to be a full song regardless. Yeah, but even right, even still, you can tell it's an intro. It's going to lead into something else. Mm-hmm. We, we don't want that. We're, we're a completely separate song. Yes. So, you want me to start or you want to start? Go ahead. Okay. Start with your number four. My number four. Well, I don't think I have these in any particular order. So That's but, fine. But looking at the songs I have, I, I actually have five. Uh, but I'm gonna, you got to uh, limit it. So I have I have a, I have an honorable mention. No, no ties. No, there's no ties. I have an honorable mention. My honorable mention is going to be "Stream of Consciousness" by Dream Theater, and I heard it for literally for the first time this morning, doing okay. doing my homework on this. And I think the notes I wrote, it's it's an epic like song, okay, and it reminds me a lot of Metallica, or it could remind anybody you know of Metallica when you listen to it. Not that it you know the riffs or anything, but it's just a structure very similar to Orion, very similar to Cthulhu. And because of that, I turned it, it became my honorable mention. But let's go to my top four. Now, my number four song is going to be, and I haven't even listened to this in a while, but I just know the song, Black Star from Ingve Malmsteen. I'm very shocked that you picked that one. Why? Just because of your uh, history with Ingve. With Ingve well, because he tried to return CDs to me. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? Ingve Malmsteen, and, and it's almost weird, the, the, the band himself almost kind of kills the criteria because another another one of the criteria was it couldn't be a, an instrumental band well like it, that, it was rising force and so and it was on a that band. album he has a singer right just, on every album he has a singer. Yeah, right so he has so vocals. you're you're still within the rules that that's how we got around that yes but black star first song on on Yngwie's solo album his premiere album Yngwie Malmsteen's rising force is still such an influential song today to so many guitar players especially Beautiful out in song. europe and it's a i mean it's a gorgeous song the guitar solos the whole thing i mean obviously influenced by richie blackmore influenced by classical music black star is an amazingly beautiful song so that was my number four you want to do your number four yeah um i'm also going to start off with an honorable mention and it's not necessarily what i would say is my number five but it's one that i think that you should listen to and uh that would be stradivarius stratofortress excuse me stratofortress Okay. Uh, so Stradivarius is a, a, a Finnish band that uh, is is popular in the in the the um, progressive rock al- uh, uh, genre. It's probably not well known to a lot of people. But what I love about Stratofortress is that it's so whimsical to use a word I used earlier. Right. It it's so cool because it's such a fast song, and you're listening to the keyboards. And the the guitar just 
lightning blazing fast. And it's just so fun to listen to. I've heard the name before, Stradivarius, mm -hmm. and I had never sat down to listen to him. So I will give it a listen to because one thing about the homework that we did on this is open my my mind and my ears to certain songs that I had mm-hmm. never heard before, like Stream of Consciousness um, and some others. That you know, it's it, obviously I wanted to mention this earlier. I am someone who is mainstream in terms of metal. Okay, I, I like all the classic metal bands, uh, the newer metal bands, like from you know, and I say this the newer the ones from the 2000s who are already 20 years old when you think about <laughs> it. Okay. So, um, these whippersnappers, <laughs> I know. So, you know, the, the new metal movement, there are a lot of bands that I, that I like from that. The, the new wave of American heavy metal. There are some bands I like out of that. Very few metal core bands that I like, but I, I, I have nothing against them. I don't listen to them. You know, with my age, I still listen to the, the old classic, metal bands so that's fine it's understandable you know Black Sabbath still exists in a lot of people's worlds this exercise is is showing me that obviously there's more stuff out there I still have a lot to listen to and, I, and it's funny I, I'm, there's one song that I'll, I'll just mention later on there's one song on a, of a band that started in the 80s that I still haven't listened to and it's the first time I heard the damn song today you know that's funny uh, you know so. and it's funny I, I'm almost the opposite in that way is that I've always kind of listened more on the more in what's the, in the fringe um, I'm a death metal guy but, but but a Scandinavian death metal guy I love you know I've said many times that I love death uh, Florida death metal early early Florida death metal yeah, early because later Florida death metal yeah the later <sighs> scene completely changed yeah um, but uh <laughs> But I've opened my ears to more mainstream music that I've never given much of a chance. Like like I said, with going to see Queensryche, I had never really given them a chance because I had only heard a few songs like Silent Lucidity and stuff that just didn't really appeal to me when I was younger. Right. So um, my number four, I'm going to go with... You uh, said Stradivarius. No, that was my honorable Oh, that was your mention. honorable mention. Okay, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> No, my number four is uh, "Dialogue with the Store," "Dialogue with the Stars" uh, from In Flames. Oh, okay. In Flames, early era, much like Metallica, just heavy music that I I really loved. I didn't like their music as much later on uh, when once they changed their their style, but uh, that that those first you know four or five albums uh, were really heavy. Dialogue with the Stars is just such a well-written, instrumental, uh, very melodic, and just you, you feel that uh, that cosmic aspect of it. So that's, that's definitely my number five. I'm sorry, my number four. <laughs> <laughs> cool. All right. So uh, my number three on, on the big four instrumentals um, is going to be a cover song, and it is uh, going to be Overkill doing Frankenstein. Oh, Edgar Winter Group. Yeah, Edgar Winter Group. That version that they do um, got lots of props from the record company. They went up to Bobby the Blitz and said, hey, man, never heard you sound better. That's because he wasn't singing. (laughs) 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 They love to joke about it. That is a great story. Yeah. uh, He, um, well, he overkill, incredible version of Frankenstein. I think Um, they're a pretty underrated band in general. We're going to have a, we're going to have a discussion about New York thrash and they're, you know, or let's say East Coast thrash because East Coast and West Coast big big difference Overkill still around today still making songs they have they much like Slayer have never compromised one bit through the years 
And so, they, and they're still making good, good albums today. I mean, now Jason Bittner's a drummer and they feel that they've, they're more musically, they're, they're better musicians because Jason's in the band mm-hmm. and this is guys, a drummer. <laughs> so, uh, Jason Bittner's real good. So that's my number, my number three, Frankenstein from Overkill on the Horoscope album. That's an interesting one. So my number three is one that uh, might surprise my uh, my partner here, and that would be Mr. Scary by Dawkin. Ooh, and really? so it's it's funny because I've I've had that song since I owned an iPod. <laughs> um, but I'm not a Dawkins fan. I've had fan. that song since I've owned an iPod too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I never bought the album because I'm not a Dawkins fan. I, yeah. I've never really cared for the band as a whole. But George Lynch is a fantastic guitarist, and so we were, we were actually talking the other day before we went to uh, the see the Queensrÿche show in Houston. I had almost kind of completely forgotten about that band. I mean that song because. I just it's it's never on the tip of my tongue. I have probably listened to it about four thousand times in in high school alone. It's one of those that I couldn't stop listening to, but it just wasn't enough to bridge me into listening to that band. And it won't. It's heavier the, than anything oh, else they put out. That it's it's weird. That album, Back for the Attack, has really heavy aspects to it mm-hmm. yet you know obviously don makes everything light yeah his vocals are just so you know, light and but, it just didn't appeal to but it me also as had, a death metal guy right exactly hey, who would <laughs> in terms of in terms of docking that album that song is so heavy there are other songs that are pretty heavy on the album and then you have songs like dream warriors on that album mm-hmm. where if it wasn't for his vocals i think dream warriors would be a heavier song it's, it's, it's nothing about, against him as a singer. I mean, it's I, everything. Well, no, that's everything against him because he brings everything down to a level that's so soft. It ruins. It ruins things for some people. For, for other people, they, they well, that's it. what I mean. Right. I mean, I understand the appeal if you enjoy Dawkin, but for me, it doesn't hit. Like the the title "Back for the Attack" actually kind of makes me laugh because the, the, to me, there's not an attack on his vocals. No, it, there's nothing. Um, so what do you got for number two? Number two. Well, no, I have my number three. Oh, no, that's right, number three. My number two is going to be YYZ from Rush. That's respectable. You know, and, and the reason the reason being is Rush may not be a metal band, but they're still a hard rock band. That um, counts. So it counts. The, and again, the influence is felt across the board with, with Rush and YYZ. I mean, they've got plenty of instrumental songs and... Their other one that's really big, and a lot of guys will talk about it, between YYZ and La Villa Strangiato, that was on, I believe it was on Hemispheres. Those two songs are huge. And I just, because I grew up in moving pictures, I chose YYZ. Uh, YYZ is heavier, um, and it fits more into the vein of, of metal. La Villa Strangiato is, is a cool song. It's not as well known. Uh, if you were to to poll ten people, uh, I would I would say more would know YYZ for sure. Do I, so? I have a little trivia on YYZ. Okay, two things. I don't know if you know this or not. YYZ is the airport code for Toronto. Oh, I I was always wondering where that came from. What, where the name came from, and what they play in the song, the rhythm and the and the beat that they play, mm-hmm. is YYZ in Morse code. Oh my gosh! Okay, that's interesting. Dun, 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 however, that goes. That is Morse code for YYZ. Wow! And mine, mine so, who thinks of that crap? 
Neil Peart. <laughs> okay. Mind blown. Mind blown. So I learned that listening to the to the Jericho podcast with Mike Portnoy, uh, okay. who was a good friend of of Neil Peart's. Okay. So wow. That, that's pretty cool. All right. So that's my number two. For number two, I've got Racer X with uh, technical difficulties. Ooh, Racer X. Yeah. Wow. Uh, another one I've had for ever. Um, my friend George uh, introduced me to, to uh, Racer X, and uh, um, yeah, I just I freaking love the song. It was it was one that I anytime I was playing a racing game, I would listen to that song and Paranoid. Uh, <laughs> Paranoid. Yeah. So uh, yeah, it's definitely got to be my number two. Cool. That's uh, wasn't expecting that one. All right. So my number one, and everyone who knows me is gonna know I'm gonna pick this song. Um, is Orion from Metallica. It's just a classic. It's an epic. I'm shocked. Yeah, most people. That's what Matt's saying in Miami. Shocked. <laughs> he can't go five minutes without talking about Metallica, and it's true. <laughs> but uh, and I and I you know what? I own it. I own it. Orion from Metallica. It is basically Cliff's masterpiece. So talking about what we talked about earlier, Orion. I mean, I could have picked Cthulhu. Eh, not as good. Uh, not as epic. Well, the end it's is a epic. slow build. The, yeah, the, the end is very but awesome. But Orion it takes a long time to get there. Yeah, I mean, played at his funeral. The the, the guitar solo at the, in the middle break there. It's it's beautiful piece of music. Uh, so that's my number one. All right. For so for number one, I've got uh, Big Shocker uh, with Death with uh, Voice of the Soul. I heard that today. It's a really good song. It's a really good song. It's it's beautiful. It's a it's two part guitar song. Um, you got the, the the electric guitar and the uh, acoustic guitar. You really have to give it a listen if you haven't. Um, even if you're not a big death metal fan, it's not really a, truly a death metal song. No, it's not. But it's 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 a heavy song and it's a somber song at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very emotional and uh, it, just being as big a fan as 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 I am of that band. I just I gotta put it at my number one. Now I I listened to it today for the first time and it is a beautiful song. I actually heard it on the way back home this afternoon, and it is a beautiful song. I I like the song a lot, and so I learned a lot from this this whole exercise. I mean, that's awesome. That's all I mean, we can ask for, right? Exactly, and that this that was great because you know the stream of consciousness from Dream Theater and other things that I wanted to talk about too. Voices of Soul. I also heard the other instrumental from um from Death, which is uh, Cosmic Cosmic Sea, and so jazzy. It is as as great guitar work is in there, but I, what I felt about that song is just, it just there was nothing memorable about it. Um, That's the way I felt. Yeah, I, I get what you're saying. To me, it's about the vibe of the song. If you if you if you close your eyes, I mean, you can feel like you're out in space. I couldn't I mean, close my eyes at work today. You can't you can't do that <laughs> while you're driving. Yeah, that either. But Don't. The, the one I, I I mentioned earlier from the band Riot, racing with the devil on a Spanish highway. Heard it for the first time today, and these were my notes. Good bass and drum work, guitar work is average, nothing extraordinary about it. But the song itself, the structure of that song is really cool. I like it. I like it a lot. I heard Cynic textures. Listening to Cynic for the first time, I had no idea that they were that proggy, but I also didn't know that they were that jazzy. But I heard, you know, going, you know, going into the weekend and knowing that uh, Sean Reinhardt died on Saturday, good to listen to it and to see, you know, or to hear that musicianship. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's incredible. I mean, great bass playing, very jazzy song. Um, you know, I like the way it went from the jazzy part to the metal part, back to the jazz. So it was really cool. I mean, I I, I heard some really cool songs today. 
of going through this exercise. And obviously we had the same, the, the, the songs that we know about, you know, Cthulhu, Mr. Scary, um, To Live Is To Die From Metallica, Suicide and Redemption. You know, one song I thought was going to stick in there was Moby Dick from Led Zeppelin. You know, that was another insertion. We didn't even mention Iron Maiden this episode with Transylvania, Genghis Khan, Lost for Words. But to me, the the, the vocal songs for Iron Maiden are just so much better. Although Transylvania is a pretty damn good song. Oh, it is, absolutely. And one song I forgot about was Genghis Khan. I forgot that was an instrumental. Oh, it it was on my list. Was it? Was Ides of March on your list? um, No, because of its... It's, it's intro yeah, feel it's to an it. Intro. But it was funny. They would intro it during during the the number of the beast tour. Mm-hmm. But they would intro it into Murders in the Rubble. Yeah, they changed. Which the- is pretty cool. Anthrax has a couple. Um, Def Leppard, and another one I thought about talking about was Little Wing from Stevie Ray Vaughan. He does an instrumental version of that song. Yeah. And that, but since he's blues it, rock, I was like, yeah, eh, we'll push that. Really it didn't in. fit the vein, but that is a good song. Still, it's worth listening to. All right, well, that wraps it up this week. Uh, Tell them how they can listen to us. You can listen to us by downloading the Podbean app or streaming us on podbean.com. We are also now on iTunes, so subscribe, listen, and rate us. Uh, Be sure to check us out on social media. Like us on Facebook under Debating Metal or follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Debating Metal. If you prefer, you can email us at debatingmetal at gmail.com. If you agreed with our comments or just want to rip us a new one, be sure to leave your comments so we can read them. And if we like them, we'll read them on the show. Well, that's our show for this week. Thanks for listening.